our reading of God's Word. We're continuing in the book of Daniel. Would you please rise if you are able out of reverence for God's Word? We're looking at Daniel chapter 3 today. Again, that's Daniel chapter 3. We'll be looking at the whole chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura and the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of this statue that he had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, As soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, If you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, 
Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their head, heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the living and active word of the living and true God. Please receive it as such and be seated. As Christians, when is the right time to resist the governing authorities which are over us? What does godly defiance even look like? Are these even questions which we should be asking and considering? After all, our Lord Jesus Christ said, Give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The Apostle Paul teaches us to be subject to the governing authorities over us as instituted by God for our good. And Peter teaches us to be subject to every human institution. On a surface level, these passages could be read as saying that there is no time ever to resist. But we can't read these texts in isolation from other texts which teach us that there is a time to resist, there is a time to do this, and it shows us, they show us also the way to do this. A good example of this, and connected with our passage today, is Acts chapter 4. In this passage, Peter and John heal a lame man, and they go about preaching and teaching of Jesus. They healed in his name, and they preach and teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, 
This didn't go over well with the ruling authorities there, and they put them in custody, and the next day they brought Peter and John before the council. But the council had a problem. They could not deny that a great miracle had happened through these people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The crowds would have gone crazy if they actually tried to put these men to death or keep them in custody. So they decide to say, you can go, but no longer speak or teach in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter and John respond in this way. Whether it is right in the sight, in your sight, to listen to God, to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. To answer our question then, there is a time to resist the ruling authorities which are over us. And that is when they ask us to do something which is in obedience to them, but is in disobedience to the Lord our God. Whether it is right in their sight or not does not matter. We must act in accordance with what we have seen and heard in the word of our God. The passage of Daniel before us today is perhaps one of the most famous examples of godly defiance and what it looks like. In this text, three Jewish men are commanded to bow down to the Babylonian idol and to worship the Babylonian gods. Yet by God's grace, they resist the king's command and do not fall in step with all those around them and what they were doing. As great an example of faith as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, they aren't the star of this story. God is the prime actor in this narrative who shows power to deliver from the hands of false gods and foolish kings. What we'll see today is that the Most High God is also the God who is with us in the fiery trials of this life. The God who delivers us through His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We'll consider three points today. First, a dramatic dedication, verses 1 through 7. Second, a determined defiance, verses 8 through 18. And finally, a divine deliverance. Dramatic dedication, a determined defiance, and a divine deliverance. Let's look at that first point, the dramatic dedication. And it is indeed dramatic. In the past two weeks, we have been looking at Daniel chapter 2 wherein King Nebuchadnezzar had a uh, disturbing dream. Sorry, my notes are sliding. Something about the way the Bible was. So I had to adjust it. He had a disturbing dream. A dream and interpretation which God revealed to Daniel and which Daniel revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, the interpretation of it. Because of this, Nebuchadnezzar had promoted Daniel, and through Daniel's request, he had promoted his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The vision which Nebuchadnezzar saw, if you remember, was of a colossal statue with a head of gold, which Daniel told him represented Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And then there were shoulders of silver, there was the the stomach of bronze, then the legs of iron, which gave way to feet of mixed clay and iron. We don't know when this narrative takes place exactly. It doesn't give us a time indicator. But Nebuchadnezzar remembered that dream with some minor changes to it. So we read in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province 
of Babylon. As we talked about last week, the, the word translated as image in this context, uh, that context, and in this context, is better translated as statue. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar was just the, the head of gold, which gave way to three successive kingdoms, showing him that his kingdom was not permanent, not prominent in that sense, Nebuchadnezzar decides to defy this part of the dream and to make a statue all of gold, commemorating his kingdom and trying to indicate its permanence and its prominence. Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to usurp the authority of God and to try to say that his kingdom is permanent, whereas the Lord had said that the kingdom that he will establish, the stone will crush the statue, that will be the permanent kingdom. We don't need to assume that this was solid gold, but probably was another metal with gold plating. The dimensions of this statue have been described uh, by scholars, as one says here, as extraordinary and monumental, even grotesque. It stood 60 cubits high, and its width was 6 cubits. That's roughly equivalent to 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide almost the same height as the Colossus of Rhodes, which was stood at 108 feet high. Perhaps the height given, though, for Nebuchadnezzar's statue includes a large uh, base to support it as well, and perhaps that would make it not look so elongated. But when you have something that tall and that narrow, it's kind of a grotesque image, a distortion of the human figure. Perhaps that base would take that away, but as some scholars suggest, this, this grotesque measurements may indicate and be a way to mock idolatry uh, that is being highlighted in this text. In any case, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar made this statue and set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Verse 2 tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We have mentioned that noting the the proportions of the statue may be a way to mock idolatry. But throughout this narrative, which deals with a very serious situation, there is kind of a, maybe you picked up on it, a satirical or humorous note. Uh, One of the ways that Daniel wrote this narrative to make it somewhat mocking and humorous is the repetition of these long lists. Do you notice how those were just being repeated? Daniel is making somewhat of a joke of this. So on the one hand, the size of the statue is impressive. But on the other, its proportions are grotesque. Likewise, on the one hand, the gathering of all these people is impressive. But on the other hand, it's kind of both petty and ridiculous. And he notes all these people down to the lowest rank from the top, and they're coming just on the request of Nebuchadnezzar. The distinction between a satrap and a prefect or a governor to a counselor is not really important in the point of mentioning all these people. The point is that there is a descending order of rank and that Nebuchadnezzar summoned all of these people to attend his dramatic dedication of this statue. So we're told that all the who's who of Babylon show up from the satraps to the magistrates 
to see the statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up and to stand before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up. Notice this repetition, and you see it so much throughout this narrative, of saying the king made this statue and set it up. It's another way to highlight the foolishness of this situation, that these people are being called to worship a dead statue that was made by a mere man. So Daniel keeps emphasizing that it was set up and made by King Nebuchadnezzar. In verses 4 through 5, more drama is added. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Again, in these two verses, there is an exhaustive element, which is both impressive and humorous. All the peoples, all the nations, and all the peoples of different languages are to obey this command, from the Babylonian to the Jewish captive. He could have just said, when the music is played, but he doesn't. He lists each instrument by name and concludes, and with every kind of music. When all the peoples hear all of the music, they are commanded to immediately fall down and worship the statue which is set up. Daniel is noting the foolishness of this situation and is pointing this out through this repetition of these long lists to mock Nebuchadnezzar in a sense. Again, Nebuchadnezzar had set that statue up, which they are to fall down and worship. Verse 6 adds the threat that whoever fails to do this act of worship will immediately be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. That's even kind of repetitious, too. It's a burning, fiery furnace, not just a fiery furnace, a burning one. And because of this, verse 7 notes that as soon as all people heard the playing of every kind of music, they immediately fell down and worshipped the statue. Again, Daniel's kind of picturing these people as just thoughtless, mindless. All these great men of Babylon immediately fall down and worship a statue when they hear the bagpipe play. To a pious Jew, and I might add a catechized Christian, this description of a crafted statue and the bowing down and worshiping of it should bring to mind two things that are important. The first and second commandments which the Lord gave to his people. In giving his law to his people, the Lord had commanded them first that they shall have no other God before him. Second, he commanded them that they shall not make unto themselves a carved image and to fall down and worship to it. That is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing and commanding them to do. He is calling on all of his officials, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to bow down and worship a deaf, dumb idol that he himself has set up and made. The question of the narrative is how will they respond? And the question to the original audience, Jews in exile, was the same. Will they bow down and worship the idols of the nations? And the same question comes to us. Will we bow down and worship the idols of our culture? Will we pay homage to an idol made and set up by human hands? 
Or will we worship and serve the Lord God who is blessed forever? Throughout this first section, I've highlighted the humor present in the text. Maybe you associate certain emotions and responses with reading Scripture, like guilt and conviction, joy and relief. Perhaps you don't often enough consider humor and laughter. But these are, in fact, responses which God expects for us in parts of his word. Think of the episode of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, where he mocks them, saying, perhaps your God is going to the bathroom. Perhaps he's asleep. Perhaps he's on a journey. Or we can think about the Ark of the Covenant being in the temple of Dagon, and Dagon falls down before it with his hands cut off and his head cut off as well. In a similar way, this passage of Daniel is showing us the foolishness of idolatry. The thing which they are to worship is an idol created by a human man made of elements of this creation. We should laugh at this narrative, even as the Lord God is said to be in the heavens and laugh at those who are going against him and his anointed. That is why we can laugh at this narrative, because our God is the true and living God. Despite the foolishness of worshiping this idol, despite all this, out of fear, all of the Babylonian officials immediately fall on their faces, worshiping and serving that which cannot hear, see, or touch. How do we face the idols of this world? Out of fear or fondness, do we stupidly fall down like these Babylonian officials, or do we avoid the groupthink and refuse to worship and serve the creature? rather than the creator. We don't have to see a giant golden statue that you bow down and fall down to. There are so many things in this culture which are trying to take us. Even as we prayed earlier, Satan uses even the good things of this life to take us and have us bow down to them and devote ourselves to them. We need to be aware that we have an idol factory in our heart and that we are in danger always of worshiping the creature rather than the creator. So we have texts like this to remind us of the foolishness of this idolatry. Will we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator? This question brings us to our next point. We have just considered a dramatic, very dramatic dedication. Now let us consider a determined defiance. Whereas in verse 7 we're told that All peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Yet in the following verses, the drama continues. In verses 8 through 9, we see that at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Notice that it's maliciously accusing. It's not just an objective, this is what happened. It's a Semitic idiom, which actually means they ate their bits. It it means that they are maliciously out to get these people, seeking their harm. Remember that it was because of Daniel and his three friends that all of these wise men, their lives were spared because Daniel intervened. When they couldn't interpret the dream or give the dream even, Daniel intervened and said, don't kill all the wise men. They should have been grateful for these Jewish exiles. Yet they seem to resent the fact that these foreigners, Jewish exiles, have risen to prominence in the providence of God and in the province of Babylon. 
The Chaldeans take a clever approach. They're at least wise in this way, the worldly ways. They do not first mention who failed to do what, but they first mention, O king, and by the way, live forever. O king, you have made a decree, or you have said that all people must bow down to this when they hear the music of all kinds. And you have also, king, said that whoever does not do this will be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. After this comes their accusation. Verse 12 says, There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You, O king, live forever. You've made this decree that we all must do this. And guess what? The men that you set up and appointed, just saying, they didn't do what you commanded. These men are Jews who failed to do this. Notice the parallel. Certain Chaldeans make malicious accusations against certain Jews. The Jews whom Nebuchadnezzar had himself appointed over the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you may notice that Daniel's not mentioned throughout this entire narrative. We don't exactly know the reason for this. Perhaps he was not taking notice of. Perhaps they were too afraid to go against him because he was really high up in the courts of the king Or perhaps he was on a journey. The truth is, we just don't know, and that's the way God made it in his word. They are accused, though, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of mainly two things. First, that they do not serve uh, Nebuchadnezzar's God. And second, they will not fall down and worship the statue. And these charges, they're true. As Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will candidly admit right to the king. Right there, where Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Notice that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just accept these charges offhand. He actually gives a chance to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to tell him whether or not that's true. And it seems to indicate that they are still in favor of King Nebuchadnezzar as he has appointed them. Also, once again, it's emphasized that the golden image is a thing which Nebuchadnezzar set up, made with human hands and not worthy of it. I'm going to keep repeating these things because the text repeats them and there's a point to it. It's something that he had set up. Moreover, not only does he seek their own testimony, he even goes further. He gives them another chance to rectify the situation. He gives them the personal command, saying that if they're ready now, when they hear all the music, to fall down and worship the statue, all will be well and good. But if they don't, then they will be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Again, this shows that they held favor with Nebuchadnezzar as he gives them an opportunity to repent of their misdeed in his eyes. But at the end of verse 15, he adds a challenge, saying, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This is not merely a challenge to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a challenge to the God, their God, by the king, and by his supposed gods. 
You would think that Nebuchadnezzar would have known this by now, but as E.J. Young points out, a prominent OPC early guy, Old Testament professor, had he paused to reflect, he would have realized that the God of the Jews was unlike his own deities. But rage does not reflect. Instead, it threatens. He should have known. He has already proclaimed this, as the, this God as the revealer of mysteries. But now he's challenging not his knowledge, but his power. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego boldly and frankly respond to the king. Not disrespectfully, but they're just being firm in their resolve. And they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Again, Young points out that in saying this, they're just acknowledging that, yes, we don't need to answer you. We did indeed not bow down and worship your idols, and we don't worship your gods. Verse 17 is somewhat difficult to translate. Uh, The ESV says, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. In the way it renders it, the statement, if this be so, it seems to refer to if we are cast into the burning fiery furnace. But this isn't the best rendering. In the Aramaic, uh, the subject of the verb is uh, God, actually. If our, uh, one rendering a scholar gives is this. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and out of your hand, O king, he will deliver us. Again, Tanner points out that they are not doubting God's power and ability to save them. Rather, they uh, affirm this at the end of the verse and say that he is able and he will save us, but they're matching the way that Nebuchadnezzar had put the question earlier. Earlier in verse 15, the king had told them, if they are ready to bow down and worship, all will be well and good. Here, they take the emphasis off themselves and onto God, saying, if God is able to deliver, he will. In other words, all that is to say Nebuchadnezzar is not in ultimate control of this situation. It's the God of heaven and earth. If he wants to do this, he can and will do this thing. Verse 18 also makes it clear that the question is not in God's power to deliver, but whether it is his will to deliver them in this particular situation. In any case, they submit to God's sovereign will, saying, but if not, Be it known to you, Nebuchadnezzar, you don't need to make us any more offers, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, they know and trust that their God can deliver them from the king's hand, but they leave the matter up to God's good pleasure and sovereign will, trusting in him. Regardless, they will gladly die this wretched death rather than bow down and worship that foolish idol which you have set up with your own hands. As with chapter 2, where Daniel stood boldly before the king and gave to him the dream and its interpretation, so here Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, stand boldly before the king and refuse his command. To the original readers of this book, in exile or suffering under the hand of foreign rulers, These verses give an incredible example of faith in God and trust in his sovereign 
plan. They knew that God was able to save them, but they submitted themselves to his sovereign will and his good pleasure. This is the way that Jesus has taught us to pray, is it not, to the Father, saying, your will be done. And this is the way that Jesus, in facing the cross, himself prayed, saying, not my will, but your will be done. As we face the trials of this life, as we experience the enticements of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we, will we foolishly fall down on our faces with all of those around us, or will we remain standing and refuse to fall down and worship the idols of this culture? Such resolve can only come by the grace of God who delivers us from our bondage to sin. This brings us to our next and final point. We've just looked at a determined defiance. Now let us look finally at a divine deliverance. Nebuchadnezzar has made his threat and given a chance to repent of their decision. Moreover, he has made a challenge to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who is the God who can deliver you out of my hand? Yet they are determined in their defiance of this ungodly command. As in the last chapter with his wise men, Nebuchadnezzar again loses his temper. He has a temper problem, as we're seeing. So we read in verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And Daniel's doing a little bit of a a clever thing here. The word that is translated as face is actually the same word as statue. Nebuchadnezzar's face has changed, and he becomes furious with this. Again, that's a way of connecting Nebuchadnezzar, a human creature, with this false, foolish, deaf, dumb idol that he has made. But in his fury, he has them heat the furnace to a severe and extreme heat, seven times more than usual, to ensure the outcome that he is looking for. On top of this, he commands some of his mightiest warriors, mighty men of his army, to bind these men and cast them into the fire. Using his strongest warriors, even binding these people, he is seeing the job through. So they are bound with all of their court clothes on, outer garments and inner garments, along with the turbans on their heads. Yet we're told that because of the urgency of the command and the extreme heat of the fire, even as they are being taken up by these mighty warriors, the mighty warriors are burnt and killed on the spot, and with the result of the three men being falling down into the fiery furnace. The detailed description of the clothing that they are bound in and the note that these mighty men were killed without even entering the furnace, they serve to highlight the greatness of this miracle. As we'll see, the clothes come into play again, but there's a reason why he's mentioning all these details. The expectation with the furnace heated thus is instant incineration. But instead, we get Nebuchadnezzar's astonishment. Looking into the fire, he arises with haste and checks with his counselors if they indeed had thrown just three men bound into the fire. And they confirm, true, O king. Yet Nebuchadnezzar responds in verse 25, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, 
and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Here he notes at least three amazing things. First, there are not three men, but four. Second, they are not bound, but walking in the midst of the fire. Third, the fourth man has the appearance of a son of the gods. Remember, in the midst of the fire, they're not only protected from incineration, but suffocation as well. Yet they're walking about unharmed. This is a great and miraculous situation. The fourth man appears to him as a son of the gods. Uh, To Nebuchadnezzar, in his language, that's a way of saying it appears like a divine being. Later, he'll describe him as an angel of the Most High God. In response to this great sight and miracle, Nebuchadnezzar himself runs near the door, not to the door, doesn't want to get incinerated himself, and he shouts out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then we read that they came out of the fire. Rather than responding in outrage, in wonder, Nebuchadnezzar calls these men out of the fiery furnace, which was their punishment, and to come before him. He describes these men as servants of the Most High God. This was a a term which was used by pagans for the highest deity. You can think of Zeus among the Greeks. So he's still thinking in a polytheistic way, but he's recognizing that these are servants of that top guy, that top God, servants of the Most High God. When they had come out, all the wise men of Babylon inspected these three men and found that not even a hair of their head was burnt. Their clothes were not harmed, and they don't even have the smell of smoke on them. Children, have you ever sat around a campfire? Maybe you're roasting marshmallows, and you go in the house, and afterwards you realize you didn't completely leave that fire behind. Your clothes smell. You smell the smoke. And then they have to be washed. But this is how much God cared for his people in this situation, that they were inside of the fire. They weren't harmed at all. And in fact, they didn't even smell like smoke. Afterwards, This is how God cares for his people. This is how God cares for you. Jesus promises all of us, all of us who are his, that not even a hair can fall from our head if it not be the will of God our Father. And we should take comfort in that. God cares for his children and he protects them. In response to this miraculous situation, Nebuchadnezzar proclaims in verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. With the description of the fourth man earlier as one like a son of the gods and here as an angel sent from the Most High God, this seems like a description of the angel of the Lord which in Scripture is both identified with God and differentiated from God. The angel of the Lord is a manifestation of the triune God, particularly the manifestation of the eternal word of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he was present through the angel of the Lord in the midst of this fire with his people. Notice here that Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing his inferior authority to God. 
praising Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for setting aside his command and being obedient to the Most High God. He's showing that he is recognizing himself as a subordinate authority to God in this situation. In recognition of this, we read in verse 29, Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Notice this ironic reversal which we get in this verse. Where do we begin with this narrative? We began with Nebuchadnezzar giving the decree that any people, nation, or language who do not fall down and worship his statue will be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. But at the end of this narrative, now we get another decree from the king that any people, nation, or tongue who even speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they shall be torn limb from limb and their house made into a dung heap. It's an ironic turning in this narrative. Moreover, whereas Daniel's God was praised for his knowledge to reveal mysteries in chapter 2, now he is praised for his power to deliver in this chapter. The question which Nebuchadnezzar had put to them, he himself now answers. What God is there to deliver you from my hand? He answers this now. The God of Israel can deliver, and no other God can deliver like this. It closes with the note in verse 30 that once again the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in their role over the province of Babylon. Again, it's showing how all the machinations and the cleverness of the wise men of Babylon trying and seek the harm of these Jewish men, the Lord uses their wickedness for the good of his people, and they get promoted even further. To the Jews who were living in a hostile land with the pressure to conform to the culture around them and bow down to the cultural idols around them or face the penalty, this text gave them the hope to persevere and not bend the knee to false gods. To us, this text reminds us of God's power to deliver. God is the sovereign King of kings, And Lord of lords, not a hair of our heads falls without the will of our Father in heaven. But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we need to be able to say, our God is able to deliver. But if he actually will deliver, that's up to his sovereign will and good pleasure. But be it known to you, O kings, we will not bow down to your idols. In facing hostile authorities which are over us, we need to say with Jesus that you would have no authority over me if it were not first given to you by my Father who is in heaven. But ultimately, this text points us to Jesus. The God who is present with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the God who is present with us in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was sent from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, who for us and for our salvation lived and died. The same Jesus who, in the prospect of his coming death, prayed, not my will, Father, but your will be done, pledging himself to drink the cup of wrath which we deserved. The same Jesus who was not bound in his cloak, 
turban, and tunic, but who was stripped naked and nailed to a cross. The same Jesus who was not delivered from his wretched death, but was delivered up, facing the wrath of God for us and for our salvation. The same Jesus who was present in the fiery furnace, in the presence of the angel of the Lord to deliver, is the same Jesus who endured the flaming fire of the cross so that we might be delivered from sin, death, and the devil. In faith, then, as servants of the Most High God, let us cling to Jesus Christ in faith today. Amen? Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, the Most High God, the revealer of mysteries, the one who is able to deliver We thank you that you delivered up your son for us and for our salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would help us. We are weak. We are sinners. And we are in a world that is hostile to you. Keep us from idols. Help us to put off the old man and put on the new man. Help us to look daily to the cross, to cling to Jesus Christ, his love and his righteousness. We pray, Lord, that we would not bow down to foolish, dumb, and dead idols, but that we would worship the true and living God. We thank you for this text, and we pray that you would help us to receive it by faith, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives for your glory and your glory alone. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we are talking about in our sermon Jesus Christ was delivered up for us and for our salvation so that we might be delivered from our sin and misery. Jesus Christ prayed, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he pledged himself to that cup of wrath so that we might have this cup of blessing. Uh, These are simple elements of bread and wine, but they represent the love of Christ. They represent him delivering himself up. Him giving his body and shedding his blood for the remission of our sins. This meal is for those who worship and serve the Most High God, those who worship the God of Israel, those who worship the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are repenting of your sins, if you are a member in good standing of a faithful Bible-preaching church, if you are actively trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, this meal is for you. If it's not, if these things don't describe you, then I would ask you to let the elements pass. But even so, I would ask you to turn from the false and foolish idols of this world and to bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ, even now. But for those of us who have faith and are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, let us be built up by faith through these simple and ordinary but glorious means of grace. Let us go then to our risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to bless this meal which he himself prepares for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for delivering yourself up so that we might be delivered from our sins. Thank you for drinking the cup of the wrath of God so that we might have this cup of blessing. We thank you, Father, for the bread of life which comes down from heaven and the water of life which you give to us. May we eat and never be hungry. May we drink and never thirst. 
Lord, we pray that you would bless these ordinary elements of bread and wine to our spiritual good and to your glory. Lord, we pray that you would help us even now to lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ and bend our knee to him. We know that one day every knee will be made to bow and every tongue confess. By your spirit, make us to do this even now willingly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.